you're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. If you're listening on iTunes or Google Play, please go to our show page and leave a review. Hey everyone, this is Tony Lopes welcoming you to another episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. This week we are talking with Bruce Maribel of Employee Cycle. Bruce and I go way back. We're friends from high school, as a matter of fact. I'm just jumping in here to apologize to everyone to let you know that unfortunately during Bruce's episode, we had a little bit of an audio snag. So you're going to hear a little bit of difference in the quality of content this week, but stick it out because Bruce's episode has amazing content about how to scale a startup and some tips for tech startups out there as well. Bruce is an amazing guy. It's great content. Make sure you listen to the episode the whole way through. We really appreciate you listening every week, and make sure you tune in on Tuesdays now when we have hustle stories with all the guests on our show. Bruce's episode was also recorded in October, and unfortunately, because of all of the audio snags we hit, we had to take a little bit of extra time editing this one to try to bring you the best quality we could. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Welcome, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing a lot of really cool stuff with Bruce Maribel of Employee Cycle. What's going on, Bruce? I'm here. <laughs> In the building. Bruce and I actually went to high school together. We did. Central. 260. Yep. CHS. Bruce and I know each other fairly well. This should be a fun episode. Just real quick, today's episode is sponsored by Lopes Law LLC. As many of you know, I run a law firm focused on helping you get to your objectives and not on the billable hour. So if you want more information, please visit LopesLawLLC.com or email us at info at LopesLawLLC.com. You can also find links to that in the show notes for this episode. So let's kick it off with Bruce. A little bit about Bruce. Bruce knew he wanted to be an entrepreneur since as far back as when he was in college at Westchester University. And he would purchase clothing to sell on campus to other students, which is extremely entrepreneurial. I love it. Um, and that experience taught him how to market himself, brand himself, and how to make a profit, most importantly. Bruce created his first tech startup, still while at Westchester. It was called University Bay, and it was basically a Craigslist for college students. It was yep. essentially an exchange platform. Tell us a little bit about University Bay and how you got it started, how you came up with the idea, how it all came together. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> so let's go back into the archives. So I was a young lad. Back at Westchester, I was in my sophomore or junior year. And shout out to my small group communications professor, because mm -hmm. this is where it all happened. So I'm in small group communications. I was a mass communications major, communication studies major, rather. And I'm in this class one day. And at the beginning of the class, the teacher comes up and she says, today we're going to do this exercise where a lot of students come together. We're going to break you up into groups. Mm -hmm. And each group needs to pose a problem that they want to solve as a small group, but then also get feedback from the rest of the class. So it just so happened that this day, this small group said, the problem that we're looking to solve is the high rising cost of college textbooks. Wow. Okay. And then everybody in their group, they started doing this whole whiteboard session and talking about all the ways that they could solve it. And then they said, all right, now let's open it up to the group and let's figure out how we can solve this collectively. Mm -hmm. So this is about mm, 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 
2005. Makes sense. Yep. And so people are barely using Google for homework, let alone for online college textbook exchange or anything, right? So some of the ideas that people started talking about were, well, what if we had a website? Well, what if we let people swap? Well, what if we had some place where people can submit their textbooks online and then other people could find them? What if we had a space where we could just drop them off somewhere and then somebody could just pick it up? All types of random shit. I don't know if I can curse on Yeah, that. of course you can. Yeah. All right. And so people kept bringing up all these random ideas and me being entrepreneurial but had never done anything in the tech space before. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the whole idea baked, but I'm thinking, wow, bringing textbooks online and then letting other people get them? And there's something there. So I went back to two of my closest friends, Alex Gilliam and Alex King. I said, look, got this idea, this thing where we can actually have students post college textbooks and then other college students can buy them. And basically what we were doing is we were eating away of the spread that the used college bookstores would have. Mm -hmm. Because if you bought a brand new biochem textbook from the bookstore, you're going to pay crazy expensive. $250. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. But then when you sell it back, you're going to sell it back and get $30 for it. <laughs> and then they're going to sell the used version for $150. Yep, exactly. So they're banking on, <clears throat> excuse me, that the difference between the $150 used versus the $250 for new. But I'm thinking, what if we even create another divider in between? And so instead of you selling it back for $30 and then them selling it back for $150, mm-hmm. what if you just sold it to another student for $80? Wow. And then yeah. everybody wins. Right. You make right. more money, student spends less money, everybody wins. Then we said, why stop there? You know what? Let's make this for everything. And so if you have a pretty cool watch or blazer or scooter or bike, and this other person has this chemistry textbook, you can swap or you can buy from each other. That's awesome. Really and cool. So it was a great idea. I think we were ahead of our time, way before mobile apps, let alone people were just eating just weren't even using the internet that much. I feel, I feel 80. <laughs> 2004, now, but, uh, right? Yeah, I know. Right, I feel right, 80 right, even right. saying this. That was still AOL time, I think, right? Yeah. 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 yeah but so. what I will say is I like to say that the startup failed gloriously, <laughs> but we all learned a shit ton about how much we like the space. And that's where for me personally, that's when I realized that I need to be yeah. a major player in this space. I need to continue to double down, continue to learn and continue to pursue my career in regards to being a tech founder. Yeah, entrepreneurship is very addicting, yeah. for sure. This was around the time that you were 19, more or less? Yeah, okay. around and 1920. You were also managing Patty LaBelle's Philadelphia-based studio for a while. I did, I did. So that was really interesting and a fun time. So I almost, at the time, that's when I was watching Entourage. Yeah, and one of my favorite shows, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah love same that here. Yeah. And I just knew that I wanted to be the black Ari Gold. Yeah, I love it. For whoever has seen Entourage, <laughs> you know exactly what that means. I'm not even going to explain it. And so I actually even started an entertainment management company while I was at the studio. Wow. And I was managing artists, songwriters, singers, models, rappers, a whole bunch of stuff. And that was about a year and a half, two years before wow. I fell in love with you know University Bay. And then that's when I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do anything really new or interesting or disruptive in the music space. For me, it was about 
being cool, right. going to right, parties, right, right. having fun and music stuff. The entourage was, effect. Like, yeah, the entourage effect. Right. Yeah. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to do something so great. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> and I'm going to totally change the music industry. Yeah. But with University Bay, I felt this new sense of disruption. And right. This new sense of innovation that I had never felt before. I said, oh, wow. In this space, I can actually do something brand yeah. new and change either the workflow or consumer behavior, or I can actually make a change in the way that somebody actually does something that they never did before. Yeah. And wow. that's the bug that I've been, you know, I've been having Chasing since. ever since. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you a quick question. So you're, 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 you have technical knowledge and, and expertise, certainly, but you weren't coding this. You brought on co-founders oh, to do that, yeah. right? Yeah, so how did sure. you find, and those were your two buddies that you mentioned before? They weren't technical either. Okay. So, oh, wow. So the three of you were sort we were of all business, guys. business developing. Yeah. And that was a wow. very interesting lesson to learn as well. We were like the Winklevoss twins. Except for it was three of us. So how did you find the coders and how did you incentivize them? Because that's always been something that's like in my mind as well, because I'm more the business developer guy and, and kind of the the big picture, right? We look at the horizon. We're like, we can get there. We'll figure out the steps as yep. we go, right? Yep. That's That's kind of the way we think. But when you're working with a, a technical person, and this is a question I, I get asked frequently from mm -hmm. either guests or people that listen to the show, and they ask a lot about how to make that marriage work, especially when someone technical might be really type A, right? Yeah. And we're definitely not like that. So, so how did you find those people mm -hmm. and how did you make that work? How did you work out the deal to get them to, to stick it out with you at University Bay to begin with? So it happened by chance. So this woman that I worked with at the studio, mm -hmm. Tashia, she was like a mentor of mine at the time when I was at the studio. And she had heard about the idea and I told her about it. So she said, look, I know this graphic designer. And she introduced me to him. And then the graphic designer introduced me to a developer. Wow. And from there, I knew nothing about how much they got paid, what exactly they did. I just knew <laughs> that we had this thing that needed to end up on the web that people can click on and use. And so I was still in school. I think Hollis and Alex, they might have just graduated. They were okay. one year out. Okay. And so at that time, I'm using college refund money. I'm using part-time job money. As you alluded to, I was selling clothes. It was much, it wasn't really clothes. It was yeah. really socks, right? right? And so <laughs> I would awesome. go to places, That's I would go great. to wholesale places, buy the girly socks with the stripes and animals and all that stuff. And then I would take them back up to campus and That's resell smart. them. Yeah. Sell what and works, so, right? Right. And so yeah. I literally just did whatever I needed to do along with my co-founders to try to bootstrap this thing. And we we tried to figure it out. And nice. so, we, so we paid him. We actually nice. tried to give him equity. Nice. We tried, okay. we tried, but he wouldn't take it. The the coder. Right. The developer. Got he it. wouldn't take it. Yeah. So what what was the failure aside from I guess you couldn't get enough sales, enough revenue to cover overhead, bootstrapping it. Right. But and, and I get your point that you were ahead of your time, so you probably felt that people weren't buying in. Today it would be a no brainer, right? Where right. people are, are like, This is a great idea. It's yeah. an exchange system. It's yep. it's like another eBay. Um so what do you attribute the the failure to being and then what were the lessons that you sort of learned out of that? Sure. I used to think about it a lot. And now I just think about it at times when there's something very specific that happens that is related mm -hmm. to what happened then. And I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, you're not going to do that shit again. <laughs> but some of the things that happened or that I realized that we just had no idea and no understanding of, 
the first thing I think of is a two-sided marketplace. Okay. So I'm not a consumer guy. I'm a straight B2B, SaaS, cloud-based software guy. But back then, I was a consumer guy because right. what we had was a consumer product. And I had no idea, no background, no experience, really no understanding of how to see the two-sided marketplace. Because you have this chicken or an egg problem. And so think of Etsy. Mm-hmm. You need buyers. You need sellers. Uh, a, Word pre- a WordPress marketplace. You need people that are creating the themes. You need other people that are buying. Uber. You need people that are driving, people that are riding Airbnb. You need people that have homes and other people that want to rent homes. Right. Without having both of them at the same time where you have, let's just take Airbnb, where you have people on the demand side where it's, I want to stay in this home, but if there's no homes there, I don't want to say, oh, well, you know, this is a shitty product. There are right. no selection. There are no variety. Right. I live in Philly. I want to get to New York. I go to, I look on your website. You have no homes there. So I'm done. I'm never going again. On the home side, it's, I listed my home with you. I never get anybody to rent my damn home. So I'm not going to do it. And so two-sided marketplaces are really tricky to get right because you have to seed both of them at the same time. Right. But you got to make sure that there's a healthy balance of the two. One can obviously be more than the other, but over time you have to keep that balance so right. that as more people get right. on, there's more homes, there's more homes, there's more people or more rides, more drivers, et cetera. And so because we had this college classified marketplace, we were trying to seed stuff. So we would we would put up stuff of our own to try to seed it, but we didn't really think through getting a whole bunch of people or getting a frat or getting a college group on campus to say, hey, put all your stuff here because we know that you're about to leave. Or when I think about it now, as I'm talking to you, we could have went to a lot of the seniors and said, look, you're about to graduate. Put all your shit. Get rid of all your stuff. Right. Get all your stuff on university. And maybe that would have been a great idea. Maybe it wouldn't have been. But either way, those are the types of things that I can think about now that we just didn't think about then. Another thing was making sure that you're working with the right people. And so the founders, me and my two partners, mm-hmm. we were good. Mm-hmm. But the developer that we worked with, it was difficult. It was really difficult to work with him because one, we didn't really even understand the language that he was speaking. Now, I still don't fully understand the language that my current co-founder <laughs> speaks to me on a daily basis, but I'm dangerous enough to even understand why he's saying what he's saying and right. what we need to right. do right. to be able to translate the business side to the tech side and vice versa. Right. But back then had no understanding and no skill set around being able to do that. And so we literally were just butting heads as we were paying this person relatively a lot of money at the time to try to figure this out. Right. So, right. And that, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So it was really about team and working with the right people, working with people with a growth mindset and really working with people who understand that, yes, you are a super young cash strapped bootstrap startup in somebody that will go above and beyond because they right. really believe in your idea versus just doing it for the cash. Right. And yeah, I, I um, we interviewed <laughs> another guest named uh, Jack Parada of uh, Vitrus. Have okay. you ever heard of him? He no, does no, a, a web design here in Philly as well, but they do it on a platform that's sort of overlaid on um, machine learning. Okay. So it it tracks all of your uh, um, content marketing and, and traces everything for you automatically and then collates the data, not too dissimilar for yeah. employee cycle, right. which we'll get right. to in a second, how you came yeah. up with that idea. Um, and But he talked about the same thing, that one of their biggest growing pains has been 
getting sort of the C-level team, for lack of a better term, in place that really gets it. Because a lot of people show up and they think they're going to work for a startup and it's going to be like Instagram glamorous, right? Yeah. Like, uh, I'm going to yeah. be driving a Ferrari because I work at a startup. <laughs> right. It doesn't work that way, right? right. It's nasty. Right. It's ugly. Yep. It's um, it, it's just, uh, there are really tough days in entrepreneurship, as as you know, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's cool, though. That's a, a really interesting story and, and an interesting learning experience for you. And then um, did you do the media planning and marketing right after that? Or did you go into your other tech startups? So when I graduated Westchester, Mm -hmm. I still worked on University Bay for about another six months to almost a year just to see if there was something there, but there wasn't. And so when I graduated Westchester, my first job out of school, I became a media planner at Tierney, big PR advertising firm in Philly. That's cool. Right. And then, so you were there for a while, you did, um, you, you did media planning and marketing and you were doing a lot of search engine marketing at the time. And then eventually you were working on bigger campaigns like for J and J and some others. Yeah. So you could tell us a lot about birth control and all sorts of other really <laughs> cool again, stuff. Again, I, I don't know if it's really cool, but, but yeah, that's the thing. I mean, yeah. If you're at a firm in Philly. Yeah. Right. That's, of course. At yeah. a certain scale, you probably can't survive without working with some type of pharma, right. healthcare brand. Right. It's that's like the hub that we yeah. have. But yeah, just to just to clarify, I was in media planning at Tierney. Right. I was there for a little bit, and then I did search engine marketing at Razorfish. Okay, got it. Right. Right. Okay. And then you went on to these bigger campaigns. Yeah. Then that's when I was working with J and J at Razorfish. So, yeah. yeah, Listerine, Splenda, Mylana, Tylenol, Clean and Clear, you name it. Right. And so. You you then founded Defined Clarity and Gather Docs thereafter, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was myself. I was CMO at the time, co-founder Alex, who I also was a co-founder with mm-hmm. in University Bay. We said, you know what? Let's do this again. And it wasn't about really building a service-based business. We really wanted to build a software company. Okay. But we had to pay bills. So we said, why don't we do what we're good at right. in order to fund what we really want to do? Okay. So, so you guys yeah. were doing kind of like web development, yeah. sort of? Yeah, and, web development. And, okay. Yeah, web development and web and app development. Got it. For other businesses. Alex, and then our other co-founder, Emeka, who had came from GSI Commerce. Okay. And you were doing that sort of as a side hustle while you were doing the, the marketing gig at Razorfish? Or no, no, no. Left. You, you full on yeah. burn the ships and yep. storm the beaches. Right. So I had left Razorfish. Alex had left TV sales. I think he was at PHL 17. Oh, wow. Interesting. And then Emeka was at GSI 360. Okay. Was it called 360? Yeah. He was at GSI. Cool. So we had a sales guy, marketing guy, a designer, web designer. We said, you know what? So you got got more pieces of the puzzle than coming in as founders now. Right. So kind of lesson learned from University right. Bay. Right, right. Was it going to do three business guys again? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to, hard lesson to learn sometimes, yeah. but yeah. I, I hear this frequently also, sometimes with clients, sometimes just in conversation, that people sometimes, you hear this a lot in the nonprofit world as well. And I, I think that um, personally, that nonprofits and startups are really, really similar. They're under-resourced, they have to be super flexible. Yep. It's all hands on deck. Yep. And they all have a common goal and mission and, and they're facing great odds right. usually, right? The big difference is that nonprofits typically are trying to save the world and startups <laughs> just say, oh, to make the world a better place, even though it's total bullshit. <laughs> but yes, yes. 
Outside uh, of that, yeah, yeah, very similar. So, <laughs> but you hear it frequently. You hear it more so in nonprofits, at least more readily, because they're all very passionate, right? And they always say, I need another person to help me kind of carry the load. Right. And I'll frequently say to people that say that, no, you need a business person to help you really stay organized. They need the opposite, right? They have yeah. the passion. They need somebody that's got a business mindset to be the yin to their yang, so yeah, to speak. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned that. Okay, so define clarity. You did that for a while. And then how did you bridge the gap into uh, Gather Docs? Sure. So we never wanted to be an eat what you kill services business. Mm-hmm. We always wanted to build some type of software as a service product because we were infatuated and really fascinated with building something that you can get subscription revenue. Right. So we said, okay. Tried to do some ad tech stuff, did some content management stuff, and then finally landed on GatherDocs, which was an applicant tracking system, which is still up and running now. Mm-hmm. And the reason, the way that we actually landed on GatherDocs is that we had a product that we pretty much pivoted that product into GatherDocs because we had this product that allowed you to source a lot of documents from a lot of different places mm-hmm. into one centralized place. Mm-hmm. And so we said, you know what? We don't know if that use case is the best use case. But let's look around and see what other types of use cases are better. And the reason why we call it Gather Docs is because we said, well, it can gather a lot of documents from a lot of different places and then put a workflow around it. And then after we went through and figured out that a lot of the other use cases weren't consistent or viable enough, we said, what use case would be great where there would be a consistent use and a consistent need to gather a lot of different documents from a lot of different people and then manage them in a workflow in one centralized place. Mm-hmm. And that's when we nailed down that it was recruiting. Interesting. Okay. And we said, well, with hiring, you're going to get applications, resumes, candidates, nonstop, every day, all day. And there has to be some type of workflow for you to be able to manage that process of moving candidates from first applied all the way to hire. And so came born, what was born, Gather Docs. Interesting. Okay. And then you were essentially the, were you the VP of business development and marketing for efficient hire before or after that? So we ended up getting some for Philly high pro. All right, let me take a step back. So with Gather Docs, yeah. we realized that we were playing in an overly saturated, hyper competitive market. And so with us, being a talented team that knew that we could compete, but we didn't want to compete in super crowded space, but instead let's create our own lane. We decided to go after the high volume, high turnover hourly space. And so companies in the retail, restaurant, hospitality, franchise, grocery, movie theater, whatever, companies that are hiring a lot of part-time and or hourly employees. So once we we decided to go after that market, we then brought on companies like Sneaker Villa, Kicks USA, the Union League. I think all of them are still using it today. Wow. And it was great. At the time when we brought on Sneaker Villa, or Villa, I guess they're now called, they had 800,000 employees, so it was great. So then we were going around, and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. It was growing, but we had to decide whether or not this was the breakout company that we were going to build and try to raise money and do all the things that a startup tries to do. Or is there something greater that we could do? Or is there some way we can actually find a home for this or a partner that can actually help us accelerate? Hmm. And so that's when we ended up basically having a shotgun wedding with this company, Efficient Hire, which started from partnership to integration to then getting Aqua hired and merged into Efficient Hire. 
Interesting. Okay. And then that's where employee, now we're at employee cycle, more or less. You were, yeah. you were there at, <laughs> so I stayed at there the time of the merger and yeah. then stayed. after that. Yeah. So I stayed for a year, learned a ton. It's a great company. And what started to happen at the end, before the merger happened, and then while I was with Efficient Hire, is that I constantly heard HR people saying that they needed to become more data-driven. And a lot of them kept complaining about the problem of having a lot of different HR systems creating these data silos where an HR person was being asked to answer questions around engagement, diversity, turnover, retention, headcount, employer brand, all of these things, compensation, gender pay inequality. All of these things started to bubble up through societal issues, political issues. And so CEOs really started to give a damn about a lot of people issues that they didn't really care about before. And so that made and demanded the HR person to then transform into this people operations, chief people officer, people ops role to be more thoughtful, more strategic, more data driven. But in that process, HR looked up and said, well, I don't really have any experience (laughs) with data visualization, data aggregation, with data analytics, metrics. This is not my thing. Sure, I look at numbers, but historically, my role hasn't been to be as data-driven as a role like finance or sales, Mm -hmm. where you're constantly measuring the ROI of the role in the department by numbers. But now HR is at this crux and it's this inflection point where it's, okay, have all these systems, have all this data. I don't know how to track it. I don't know how to visualize it. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to bring it together. This is totally out of my wheelhouse. So what they do is they go to all those individual HR systems and they typically export a bunch of crappy spreadsheets And then they try to turn all those crappy <laughs> spreadsheets into one monster crappy spreadsheet. And then they go to their CEO, CFO, whoever, and they kind of look at them like, eh, this is yeah. not what I expected. This right. is kind of BS. And it's all relative. The reason why they're getting that response is because sales, marketing, product, finance, they have these beautiful, shiny dashboards. There's a lot of products that have been built for marketing, sales, finance. They have these great dashboards that will bring all the data together and connect to all these different systems. And so me really have been a sales and marketing guy and had used products that were specifically focused on sales and marketing mm-hmm. and used dashboard that tracks all of our metrics from our startup. I was I just kept wondering, why doesn't HR have something like this? Right. right. And so I did a shit ton of research and Googling to make sure that the same way we got into a hyper competitive market with GatherDucks, this wasn't the same thing happening again, where we thought that we were building something and, you know, best things in sliced bread, only to look up and say, oh my gosh, it's a thousand players. But kept trying to validate, validate, validate. And they said, you know what? There's really no players in this space. Wow. And if we don't solve it and solve it in this way for the companies we're going after, which are companies between a hundred and a thousand employees, I don't know who's going to solve it. And that's how Employee Cycle was born. Wow. Amazing. So, all right, give us a little bit of a highlight of where you are right now, now that we've got the background up to roughly today, and what we can expect in 2020 from Employee Cycle. Sure. So today, it's myself, I'm co-founder, CEO, my co-founder, Salas Araya, he's my co-founder and CTO. And so we're the only full-time people right now. And then we have a, you know, kick-ass rock star contract product team. That almost feels like they're a part of our company, which is great, doing all types of things around data analysis, data science, 
database um, architecture, front development, back development, product management, a whole bunch of really cool things, as well as uh, some other contractors doing PR, outbound sales. We have started to bring on a, a good roster of customers. Most of them are in San Francisco, yeah. just because they're using the types of HR systems that we integrate with. We've raised to date four hundred and seventy-five thousand, nice, which is great of our pre-seed round. Nice, and, nice. Congratulations! That's thank fantastic. you, thank yeah. you, thank you. And then our round is still open for a, a few select strategic investors. So, nice. you know, if you're interested, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a, a link in the uh, show notes to to where they can get more information about Employee Cycle and how they can reach out to you to, yeah. to yeah. get that money. Yeah, but um, things are good. Things are good. That's fantastic. So we just launched the beta version of our product last week and we're getting press and a lot of HR people are really digging it. They really like what we're doing. They're seeing a lot of value out of it. They can't believe that somebody hasn't done this already. I had some had an HR person on a demo the other day saying, you know, Bruce, I don't know how long you've been around, but I've been doing, I've been doing, I've been Googling for HR dashboard for a while and you guys didn't come up. So I'm surprised that you've been doing this for a while. Well, I said, look, we just launched last week. But we'll, we'll, I said, but we're working on SEO. We'll get it. I said, look, we'll work One on thing it. at a time. One I said, we'll time. be there. We'll be there. She said, okay. Wow. She said, because I'm sure I'm not the only person looking for this. And there's a lot of people looking for it. I said, well, look, we're here. We're here. Don't worry. Don't worry. Cool. So yeah, so cool. it's, been, it's been a great experience. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you're at 475. Of, of, you're looking to get to 500,000 for your pre-seed round. Right. And we've opened it up to a little bit above that okay. too. So, I mean, probably stay open to about 750. Okay. Because now it. it's looking right. like we're going to be oversubscribed. Because now we have, yeah, we have, have. we have a lot more investors <laughs> interested now that we've been violating a lot of things and showing proof. So. Right. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. So now... Getting into more of the nitty gritty details about what Employee Cycle does, and we'll yeah. do that for a little bit. And then what we'll do is we'll we'll talk about HR data in general, yep. um, specifically why it should be data driven. Then we'll talk about how HR data helps increase employee retention and engagement, and that's sort of a, a key point of what this episode will be about. Then we'll dive into the trials and tribulations of uh, co-founding tech startups a little bit more, as well as some of the best practices that you have and all advice right. based on on what you've learned. Let's do it. So, all right, cool. How does Employee Cycle transform "quote unquote" disconnected HR data into one centralized source of truth? That's a quote from you from one of your speeches. Yep. Um, because to your point, to what you were talking about before, this is all kind of siloed in separate places, and you have to go and sort of collect it all, and then aggregate it together into this dashboard that makes sense. And that's yep. also visually appealing to, right. to the people who are using it, right? Yep. Yeah. So the way that most HR people are doing it now, and I'll talk a little bit about their HR systems and their HR tech stack. So a lot of companies, specifically who we're going after 100 to 1,000 employees and primarily tech companies, they might be using anywhere between three to five different HR systems. Mm-hmm. So you'll have your payroll HRIS system that typically houses all of your general employee records. Then you'll have your ATS slash recruiting software, which allows you to source, manage, process to manage all your candidates and hiring process. Then you'll have an employee engagement system, which will send out the surveys to get employee sentiment, see people care about their job, care about their role. They're happy with the LaCroix in the office. <laughs> then you'll have a performance management system 
that's tracking if people are actually performing, right. what's the difference between the perception of an employee performing versus the manager's expectation of the employee or whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Probably have a glass door. And then maybe there's other systems too. Benefit admin system with your benefits. If you're a tech company, maybe you have Carta to track stock options. If you are a consulting firm and you're tracking hours, maybe you're using something like Harvest to track all of your billable versus non-billable hours. Mm-hmm. Or overtime, if you're an hourly employer, I mean, there's so many different HR systems. Yep. And so, as I alluded to earlier, a lot of HR people, they go inside of each of these systems and they typically download an Excel spreadsheet or CSV and they try to pull all that together. And typically, it doesn't look good. It's static. So, it's already outdated as soon as you pull it. It typically doesn't have any trending lines. Because that's what's really important for you to be able to see what changed over time, not just to look at things point in time. And so you're only looking at things at point in time and you're probably not sharing it. So the value of what you did probably didn't go out of HR to your CFO, CEO, investor, advisor, whoever right. you're talking to. Right. And so it's just not a great process. And typically what we found is that most HR people spend 90% of their time putting the data together. And only 10% of the time actually analyzing the data and trying to figure out what the data means. And we want to and are going to help you flip it on its head so that you spend almost zero time pulling the data together and almost 100% of your time actually understanding the data to figure it out. So the way we do that is pretty simple. At this point, most software companies, especially cloud-based platforms, have what's called APIs, which very simple. It, APIs allow you to connect one system to another system to either push data, pull data, or push and pull data, mm-hmm. depending on what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And so our system only pulls data. And so a lot of the HR systems that we integrate with, they have open APIs. And so it allows us to build to the connection of those different HR systems so that an HR person can go to our dashboard, create an account, put in there, just call it username, password, credentials for their system. And then that allows us to pull all their data from all those different systems into one streamlined dashboard. And so what that looks like for us is all the diversity, headcount, retention, promotion, payroll data from your payroll HRIS system, we pull that in. All your operational and efficiency metrics from your recruiting system, we pull that in. Your employee engagement metrics, performance management, Glassdoor, we pull that in. And then eventually, because we're not the type of agnostic dashboard where we try to track everything for your entire business, but we're a thousand percent exclusive to HR, the benefit for us is that as an HR person, you know that we're going to continue to expand upon additional categories. And so there are other systems that track things like HR relations or employee issues and incidents. So especially with so many people, again, Another thing that's bubbling up because of things happening in society around women, sexual harassment, and Me Too. So now a lot of companies are tracking how many employee issues do we have and what those issues look like and the percentage of those issues based off of categories. So we pull in that. We can eventually we'll be able to pull in that data as well to show you how many issues did you have, what kind of issues did you have, how many issues did you have by department so that you can start tracking things like toxicity in your different departments and try to catch those problems before or catch them as their small issues before they become big problems. Right. Having you around is an asset in general to HR people because just you have 
a great mindset in terms of the way that HR people should be thinking. You think that marketing should be HR's big brother. I do. So you you've mentioned, I think it was at um, Disrupt HR. Yeah. was a, a speaking engagement that yep. you were doing or you were emceeing one or the other. Yep. And you mentioned in your in your top five, the first thing I think you mentioned was that, you know, people post a crappy job post and then get surprised when employees show up and they're disgruntled or, oh, those damn millennials, they don't want to work right. and they just don't want to do it. But they don't right. think, hey, we made some promises that we're not delivering on. Exactly. Right? So yep. you, you yep. believe that that organizations should market to their employees as if they were marketing to clients very similarly, yeah. right? Yeah. And then adding on to that, uh, so why do you believe that, first of all? And then second of all, why do you believe that goal setting early on in the employee-employer relationship and ensuring that there's a transparent career path is so important to retaining key employees long-term? Yeah, I, I believe this to the core. And so it's interesting. One of the reasons why I believe when investors ask you your secret sauce, yeah, right? The secret sauce that we have is that we believe we know our customers a lot of them more than they even know themselves. Right. And I mean, now I'm going to happy hour with HR people, HR conferences. I'm constantly around HR people. Right. I knew I started to do a good job of being around HR people when they started asking me that I used to work in HR. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. All right. Yeah. Good. I am. I am faking this very well. <laughs> people even awesome. believe it. Yeah. So in regards to what you were talking about, about the parallel of the customer and the employee. So a part of our secret sauce is that what's built in the employee cycle DNA is that we have a strong belief in understanding that the employee life cycle and the customer life cycle are almost exactly identical. So what I mean by that is you have a you almost have the same exact starting point when you attract employees as well as you attract customers in the same endpoint where you lose employees and you lose customers. And then all throughout that continuum are almost the same. And so when you first start off and you look at the very beginning of the stage on both life cycles, Mm -hmm. you have to attract employees. Well, you attract employees through Craigslist, referrals, maybe you put out ads, or you do the same thing for customers. You have to attract them, you get referrals, or you put out ads. You then manage your customers through what typically is called a CRM, And a lot of people use Customer Relationship Manager to track the customers, who they are, all the information about them, what stage they're in, and then how long is it going to take for them to close? Right. And what is the value of them in the industry and all that stuff? Right. With an applicant tracking system or recruiting software, you do the exact same thing with an employee. You track how many candidates do you have, where they are on the process, how long does it take to close, and then what role or department they would work in. Even when it comes to compensation. The customer is paying the company, and so you're using some type of system like Stripe or QuickBooks or some system that's allowing you to track how much did you make per employee or per customer. Same thing on the employee side. It's just that it's flipped on its head where the company is paying the employee, but you're still using a system like Gusto or ADP where you're tracking how many employees you have and how much you're paying individually. And then even when it comes to engagement, you have to engage your customers. You want to make sure that they're you, that they're using the software, product, service, whatever it is. And then you're using things like you're tracking NPS, net promoter score. Yep. 
to see how much, how well they're doing, how much they like your product, how likely they are to refer it. Exactly. And then with employees now, HR is now tracking what's called EMPS. Interesting. Employer Net Promoter Score. Wow. To track how likely they are to refer other employees and how happy they are. And then when you just keep going down the line, even when you look at things like churn, on the customer side, churn is how many customers did you have and then how many customers are leaving. So you make sure that you don't have a leaky bucket. So you're not bringing a customer and losing a customer, bringing a customer and losing a customer. Churn is the exact same thing as turnover on the employee side. And then at the end of the spectrum, and this is what we're really working on, and this is our, call it unicorn, billion dollar market idea, whatever it is. But on the customer side, you then track lifetime value. Right. To see what was the ultimate worth of that customer. Mm-hmm. So if I have a customer paying me $10 a year and I keep that customer for 10 years and the lifetime value is $100. But what people really want to know is what is the LTV, lifetime value, or for us, ELTV, employee lifetime value. And so how much value did an engineer bring you? How much value in dollars or productivity Interesting. did a salesperson bring? Now, sales is easy because... You can, you can just track it, it directly. Yeah. But right. marketing, product management, customer right. success, Those engineering, yeah. right? They're mushy. Yeah. And so for us, long-term, machine learning and AI, predictive analytics, and a bunch of other things, the goal for us is really to, step one, bring all the data together. Step two, be able to benchmark. And then step three or 10 or 100, whatever that step is, is to really nail down ELTV. That's brilliant. Because then we can help companies figure out how much should they actually be spending to hire a person based off of a percentage of how much that person on average in that tar- in that department will be bringing in regards to right. value. Right. It, it just makes sense really to, to break it down that way. Yep. Um, so now how about <laughs> the, the goal setting aspect, which I know you, you think there's a direct link um, to goal setting early on, to being transparent with your future employees to, to stop posting shitty job posts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's true. I mean, yeah. because especially in the world that we're living in today, when people are coming in and they're, you know, looking at this job posting and they're looking at it almost in a pseudo, these are all the things you're promising me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to come to you. I'm going to exchange my time and effort. I'm going to yep. give it 110% or whatever other, you know, contrived uh, percentage you want to use. <laughs> right. But um, right. I'm going to come in, I'm going to work my ass off, but I want more than a paycheck. I want value in my life because I'm working for you, right? Mm-hmm. So employees nowadays are looking for added value in terms of alignment with their philanthropic interests, alignment with their worldviews, right? They're, they're looking at employers a lot like they look at relationships, mm-hmm. to your point. Yeah. And so... You, you've said before that goal setting early on and transparency are really key to um, to ensuring that there's retention there, built-in retention. So why do you think that and what do you think the best practices are in terms of preparing a job post and making sure that you're living up to that? It really comes down to expectation setting. So I like, I'll liken it to a relationship. Mm-hmm. If you are in a relationship with... You know, whoever you're in this relationship with, and say if it's a romantic relationship, and you want to be with someone who makes a lot of money, right? Right. But then you end up being with someone who doesn't make a lot of money. And you keep trying to push them to make a lot more money, but they don't want to make more money. Well, there's a disconnect there. Right. Because your expectations of them were made up. You 
they never said they wanted to do that. But you have this idea of the person that you want to be with. So now you're trying to force this person and the cliche of, you know, square peg and a round yeah, hole. Right. A lot of jobs and a lot of companies do that too. They'll put out this, they'll put out this job description for let's call it a marketing position. Right. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be so much fun. You're going to be interactive, creative, collaborative, innovative, blah, blah, buzzword, 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 all this stuff. And then the marketing person gets there and they're designing mailers that people are going to send in, in your mail. They're designing yeah. direct-to-home right. mailers, boring-ass mailers. Or, or worse, they're going to a college campus to hand out flyers or right. something like that. Because a lot right. of early-on marketing positions are marketed as, oh, great marketing opportunity. And then you find out you're just standing on the corner handing out right. pamphlets, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. And this person's thinking, damn, there's no autonomy here. There's no creativity here. Right. Sure, we're collaborative, but we're collaboratively working on designing a mailer (laughs) to send out. It's boring (laughs) as hell. And and so, wait, there's there's no autonomy here. It's boring. I thought it was going to be fun. Right. And so it's no wonder that so many companies will have this high first-year turnover, which, by the way, is the most costly turnover because you don't get the payback for the amount of money that you actually spent to hire the employee. Right, because it's like customer acquisition to your point. Yep. You spend a lot of money up front right. trying to acquire and then once you've acquired an employee training, getting them onboarded, bringing them in, making sure they're acclimated, making sure yep. that their cube or office space or whatever is warm yep. and fuzzy. Yep. Do they want a standing desk? Now you got to go on veradesk.com and right. buy a really expensive right. standing drop desk. 4000 for a <laughs> desk, right? <laughs> And all those things really add up to, to your point. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to that, that um, now that we've established why there's a disconnect. So what are your best practices for employers looking to increase their retention and looking to plug that, that leak? What are your best practices for creating transparency in that uh, situation? Well, one, it's super simple. And for anyone listening, maybe it's difficult. But just tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Novel concept, right? right? Novel concept. Right, so, right. So I mean, who, who would have thought so it? Who would have thought it? Super it's really weird. weird. But just tell the damn truth. Right. If it's not the most interesting, exciting job, then reword it in a way where it's not fun, but it's meaningful. Right. And tell the story about how it's connected to the overarching goals and objectives of the company. So maybe it might be the most ideally stereotypical fun thing to do. I'm not on tour with a band, but I'm designing this thing because, I don't know, say if you're designing a a, a direct mail home uh, mailer for a nursing home, that might be boring. But if we didn't do this, then children of parents at a certain age wouldn't find out about it. And if they don't find out about it, then they're in a stressful situation and they might not be able to take care of their parents. And then their parents also were in a, or their loved ones or whoever it is might be in a stressful situation and now they can't get the care they receive. And so that's why your job is so important. Right. That actually might be so much more important than it's going to be super fun and we have LaCroix or ping pong, ping pong tables <laughs> or pool tables or dartboards and all the other shit. That, that really might connect with somebody saying, you know what? It's not the most glamorous. I don't. I'm, I'm not doing super fun advertising for Sprite or Pepsi or something like that. But 
I know that the organization is doing good work and I'm a means to an end without me doing this design for this mailer and sending it out, then people wouldn't know that we exist in the first place. Right. So connecting it to the better purpose, to the bigger purpose. That's a great idea. Yeah. And and to your point, I mean, not every job is going to be working at Pepsi or, or Google or whatever. And right. you just need to find maybe a mission-oriented way. And you're going to get better employees that way, too. It's right. better for the employer right. as a whole yep. if you just tell the truth. Just tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. That might be a hard one to sell. But, uh, <laughs> it we'll might see. be. We'll it see. might be. All right. So let's switch gears now more toward the co-founder side, toward you being a tech co-founder. Um, you're very well known in the space here in Philly. Um, and, and for good reason, I was about to say, hopefully for the yeah, right reasons, yeah, for the right reason. Yeah. Uh, Bruce is not only a gregarious and, and great guy. I'm not reading this off the screen, by the way, this is off the top of my head. Okay. He wrote that down beforehand. Those are some big words yeah, yeah. that you wrote down. Yeah. No, um, um, you are, you are a genuinely great guy. Uh, and, no, and thank I, you. I can say the stamp of approval for sure. But so what are your thoughts on the necessary milestones to get a tech startup off the ground, you know, what are the necessary steps not only to take, but necessary agreements to set up? And what are your thoughts on seeking out investors early on versus bootstrapping, et cetera? Got it. So I'm not going to go into the super granular yeah, part, yeah, yeah. very high, high level, of high level corporation yeah, docs yeah, and that yeah, type of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course because right. I think you can just right. find it anywhere. Yeah, call a lawyer. I might know one. You might. <laughs> you might. <laughs> <laughs> but I can only talk from my sure, of experience. Course. Yeah, of course. For me, before you do anything else, I would say make sure that you have an idea that you believe in so much that you're going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. And what I mean by that is make it happen doesn't necessarily mean that you need to go start the company tomorrow. Right. But make it happen means I have this idea. And I need to figure out if this idea makes sense. I'm going to do surveys. I'm going to talk to as many people as possible. I'm going to learn as much about the industry as possible. I'm going to take it seriously. And so that's what I would say. Step one, find an idea that you believe that you're willing to spend time, night, weekend, sacrifice, do whatever, take it seriously. Yeah. Once you start to take it seriously, try to start validating whether or not this idea makes sense. Now, here's the hard part. A lot of people will say it doesn't make sense because a lot of times it won't make sense on paper. That's the point of innovation and disruption. Exactly. It doesn't make a lot of times things don't make sense. Again, using the Airbnb example, I know when I first heard it. What? You want to sleep on somebody's couch? <laughs> That's a business? Yeah, and, and uh, my my wife and I are like, yeah, we're not uh, we're not ever going to rent out like the guest room. That would be right. ridiculous. But yeah, nowadays it's like common practice. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. right. So it's really about doing the research, figuring out whether or not you can try to validate what you're doing, mm-hmm. but then in the same token, trying to also have enough conviction in yourself to know that this might work, even if everyone told me it's a stupid idea right? or that somebody already tried it before. And that's typically what you'll get. Oh, somebody else tried this before. Oh, that company tried it before. Oh, this big company tried it before. Oh, this guy that I know, he tried it before. Because none of them were able to make it work. How could you ever make it work? Who are you? You don't have the resources. You don't have the relationships. You don't have the money. You don't have the whatever, right? Once you get past that, now it's, okay, I've tried to validate it. I've asked a bunch of questions. 
whether you have talked to 100 people or done surveys and that's how you validated it, or you just have some inner feeling that just won't allow you to sleep and you just have such a strong belief now and you just have to make it work, now it's time to figure out what type of team do you need to actually pull this together. So if it's software, well, now you need somebody to build it. If it's a restaurant, now you need somebody to cook it. If it's, you know, real estate, now you need somebody to build it. Whatever that thing is, I would start to look for the types of people who you can talk to to not necessarily be your partner per se, but at least just figure out, even if I want to pay you to do this, how much does it cost? Right. So I can start figuring out, do I need to raise money? Can I bootstrap it? Can I do partial? Can I even learn how to do this myself? Mm -hmm. And so if it's engineering, maybe you learn how to code yourself. If it's real estate, maybe you learn how to build yourself. Or maybe you say, you know what? I'm so good at what I'm doing and I'm not speaking for myself that I'm never going to learn how to code, right? Like I, <laughs> I know my lane. Right. I know my right. lane. I am Strange. super right. laser focused right. Right. on right. go-to-market, sales, leadership, team building, all the other stuff that a non-technical founding CEO would do. Right. But you know, I was lucky and blessed enough to be able to find super talented rockstar CTO that balances my skill set out to be able to build out right. the technical team. And so from my experience, it's really about trying to build a complementary team Mm -hmm. where, sure, you have some overlaps, and that overlap should be within the mission of what you're looking to do, but the most well-rounded team possible so that not only can you actually perform those skills and do the work in all those different areas, but if you're well-rounded, then that means that you also have networks in those spaces that you're already in to be able to build teams, bring in contractors, partners, have domain expertise or experience and relationships, et cetera. All right. So now now flipping over to the agreement side of things and and certainly not a technical discussion or or legal advice or anything like that here, but more so just high level in your mind, what are the agreements that you're thinking? You're you're formed, the entity's up, you have a team in place, you guys know what you want to do. Let's just assume that the operating agreement or whatever is taken care of. The internal deal is taken care of. We're yeah. looking at externally building a tech startup. Yep. So what are the necessary things people need to start thinking about if they're in that space and they want to grow and they don't want to hit a wall later because they don't have the right things in place? Sure. So if you already have your operating agreement in place, that's right. going to help you figure out. Well, that's a really big, important sure. part because yeah. you need to flesh out all the things around what does this business look like? How are we going to incorporate it? it is. Yeah, all this stuff. Basically, the most important thing that I think is covered in this document is who owns what? How long do you own it? How long is it going to take for you to vest? Which basically vesting means how long will it actually, how long will it take for you to actually really own the shares? And maybe we can talk about that later, but in regards to how that works. But yeah, how much do you own? How long will it take for you to actually get all of that equity? And what happens in certain situations yeah. if you were to leave the company, get fired, find the other person? Yeah, the buy sell right. stuff. Yeah, right. I mean, if you're working with the right attorney, wink, wink. Um, <laughs> hopefully, you have yeah. you've had that discussion and the operating agreement set up. So beyond that, we're looking externally, right? So oh yeah, so customer agreements. Yes, exactly. for sure. Yep. You want to make sure that your customer agreements are tight. And so for us, that's really important because we touch a lot of data. And so our terms of service, our privacy policy, and all the clauses around data, data privacy, yep. data security, cybersecurity, yep. cybersecurity, for sure. Are you guys doing like GDPR 
uh, provisions built into yeah. your cybersecurity yeah, provisions in your three. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but it's a, it's a good framework yeah. globally. It right. Is, yeah. It is GDPR and then CCPA. Right. Right. That's the California. PRA. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we've been working very hard on making sure that we're getting compliant for both of them. Right. Because you have to in today's world. If you're building a tech company, cybersecurity is a huge risk. And what happens in terms of liability, right? Yep. That to your point, yep. if that agreement's not tight on who's covering what, the indemnification provisions, the liability, who's liable for what, right? You could end up in a huge mess right. with what was potentially a good client. Yep. And now you've destroyed your business. I mean, top three right. important things for me at the company are one security, two privacy. Three customers. Yeah. And I'm sure it didn't used to be like that for a long time, but now it has to be. Yeah. Because you can't have the customers without making sure that their data is secure and that it's private across all the different customers that you have and making sure that the right people can access it or right. the wrong people can't access it. Right. Right. Okay. So so customer agreements, anything else off the top of your head that you uh, think you really need to have in place? Outside of that, it really depends on how you're building the business. We right. have partnership agreements for joint ventures with other companies and stuff well, like that. Well, no, not necessarily joint ventures, but integration partnerships. Okay, right. And then rese- uh, well, reseller agreements okay. as well, which is kind of one and of the same with mm-hmm. certain partners. So some of our integration partners that we work with have reseller agreements and also partnership. It's kind of all put together mm-hmm. because of being part of being a partner. It's about reselling each other's software. So yeah, partnership agreements, operating agreement, customer agreements, yeah. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> One very, very important agreement is the agreement with your contractors mm. and employment agreements. Hey, we're in HR. Right, talking about HR. Yeah, yeah employee agreements. Yeah. But in the beginning, you might not have employees, you might have contract agreements. And so the assignment of IP yeah. is clutch. Big time. It's yeah. clutch because you, know, you grow a multi million, multi billion dollar business, but then you don't have the rights to the software. Well, you just spend all your time for no reason, or you're just going to spend a lot of time in court. Yeah, which is, which is not good. Money. By the way, I'm not the type of attorney that likes litigation. I like to avoid <laughs> litigation, both for right. myself and for right, my clients. Right. But, I love how um, you intertwine all of these. Like, at the <laughs> that's right not time. the game plan. That's not the game plan. Not the game plan. We'll get away from agreement. It's good. It's good. No, it's good. No, no. But how about now, investors and bootstrapping? What What are your thoughts on? seeking out investors early on or bootstrapping. And just to kind of to preface it a little bit, I know you mentioned earlier that you really need to have an idea that you're willing to basically go to hell and back for, right? Yeah. So yeah. And that and go to hell and back means different things at different times. Right. So in the very beginning, it means to validate, 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 learn, 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 learn as much about the problem, figure out what the landscape looks like, how are people currently right. solving the problem, have people already tried to do this before? If so, what do they do wrong? What do they do right? If people are doing it now, where's the opportunity? How can you do it better, faster, cheaper, different? Mm-hmm. And then once you get to that point and you really feel like you're wrong something before you even touch a line of code, now it's time for you to try to do something manually. Oh, one of the things I did forget about investors is investors agreements, of course. Right. Right. And so term sheets, promissory notes. Yeah, a lot of times you're going to be subject to what the VC or the angel has anyways, right? It, not necessarily on with, with angels. Yeah. So with your angel group, you can pretty, I won't say you can dictate the terms because it's not like, hey, these are the terms and you stick yeah. with it. Right. But right. once you start getting momentum and traction mm-hmm. with a certain amount of investors, 
other people will look at it and say, okay, they don't sound ridiculous or right. outrageous, then right. cool, it's fine. Right. And that's pretty much what happened with us. Right. Great. But so you're, you're a big believer, it sounds like, in bootstrapping at least early on, making sure I, that you validate what you have. And then once, you, once you've got that, look for investors, or would you say investment early on is fine? I think it depends on what access to capital you have. Right. If so, it's I mean, there, you might as well take <laughs> it, right? <laughs> if you have it, if you have someone that's willing to give you five or $10,000 to test something out, I would spend the five or $10,000 to test it out. Because right. in the grand right. scheme of things... It's relatively small sure, or almost right, nothing. Right, right. But I still try to do as much as possible before you spend a dime on anything. Sure. But there's also opportunity costs. And the market moves lightning fast. Right. So if you have a market that you're eyeing up or an opportunity and you're at this inflection point where, excuse me, where you believe you need to move at a certain speed, then you need to jump on it now. Because, you know, as you know, Facebook and Zuckerberg and a lot of people say, you know, fail fast. Right. And right. fail fast isn't that you hope that you fail, but it's really about figuring out what's wrong with your idea. You want to stress test the hell of it. You want to stress test the hell out of your idea before anybody else can tell you, oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. And just start right. putting holes in it. If you know more about the downside of your idea than anybody else, then people will respect that. And so will investors as well. Right. That goes back to what you were saying about your earlier about the two-sided market with university. But right, right. Ha- had you gotten to that a little faster, you might have been able to pivot and survive or, or yeah. find a flexible way around yeah. it, right? And it's yep. tough when you're trying to develop, to your point, a business where you have two key stakeholders almost at juxtaposed positions. And yeah, sure. if you fail on one, the whole thing collapses. It, it's yeah. tough. It's really yeah. tough. Yeah. But in regards to bootstrapping, so for us, we bootstrapped for a while. We got paying customers. We built an MVP. We built about a dozen integrations. We had our first integration partner before we even had a dime of funding. Mm-hmm. Part of it was choice. Most of it was fate. <laughs> we were, I mean, we were trying to raise money earlier. Yeah, and right. like, you know what? Instead of asking for money to do these things, we're just going to do these things. Right. And now that we've done them, it's a much more compelling story and it's much more believable now because we can support it with data right we can't say yeah we're going to be a unicorn we're going to be a billion dollar company tomorrow but what we can say is look we built an mvp we understood the customer we did a ton of surveys we built something that was valuable enough for hr leaders to get budget for they ended up paying for it and they like it enough to give us testimonials and to do customer interviews and videos yeah we have enough right we have enough proof for us to raise this round to then be able to validate some more questions. And so now with this round that we've raised, it's all about us getting to product market fit. Interesting. And making sure that people are using the product, they're active, they're logging in, and they're sharing the dashboard. Interesting. How do you typically test out your ideas before you go to market? So when you say before you go to market, are you saying... At the validation stage, when you're validating your ideas, how are you going about that process? And um, what are you doing to make sure that you're doing the right steps to validate appropriately before you actually take your product to market, whatever it is? So I'll walk through our steps to answer that question. Yeah, thanks. So we had things that we wanted to validate on the product side. Mm -hmm. And then we also had things on the go-to-market side we wanted to validate. So for us. 
the first thing we wanted to validate was could we find HR leaders that was interested in the problem we were solving? Mm -hmm. And so we, we did that. The next step was can we find HR leaders that are trying to solve the problem manually? Because if they have enough pain for a problem, you're typically trying to solve it with some other kind of janky type of thing that you're trying to do. Right. And if you're not trying to rig something together to do it, then maybe you don't have that much pain. Right. So the fact that we kept finding multiple HR leaders and a variety of HR leaders trying to solve this problem manually, we said, okay, great. Then there must be pain. So there must be value in what we're doing. So then the next thing was, now that you're doing this in messy spreadsheets, mm -hmm. will they give us access to those messy spreadsheets so that we can at least see what they're doing? Because that was the first signal that we could get to prove that we could actually get access to the HR data. Right. Once we got access to those spreadsheets, we then said, all right, now can we turn this into some MVP version of a dashboard to show that we can actually execute on building something that's replicating what they're doing manually? Once we were able to do that, we then went back and forth with some of the beta users or MVP users that we had to ask them, how would you like to see this data? Okay. Because right. now that it's in a product form and we've taken it out of Excel, there's a lot more things that we can do that you just weren't able to do in the spreadsheet. Right. Would you like to see this data trending over time? Is it best suited as a pie chart or a bar graph or a line graph or a box plot histogram? What's the best chart type to tell the best story? How do you want to tell the best story? Mm -hmm. What metrics should be grouped together? And in what category should they be grouped in right. so that you can tell a data-driven story about the workforce? What is your workflow? So then we start trying to figure out how do we, how do we embed this into the workflow? Once we were able to validate that with some customers, then we said, okay, now can we get users to give us access to their API tokens? Right. And give us access to their HR systems. Because if they won't do that, then the whole business idea falls apart. So then we got access to the systems. So now the next thing was, can we actually pull data from those systems in the way that not only shows the data that they want to see, but it's actually exposing all the data that we think it's actually going to allow us to pull so that we can show all the metrics. Right. So it was about showing all the metrics, but then also showing the metrics in the way we wanted to show them. Mm-hmm. Right. And then once we were able to validate that, we said, okay, now we can build this thing. Will they pay for it? And so we said, okay, now that we've worked with some companies for free on a pilot to do all of that, now let's see if we can get some unaffiliated customers to pay for it. Right. And when I say unaffiliated, I mean a customer that doesn't come from a referral or from somebody that we know or somebody in our network. And so I did go to a bunch of HR people in the local Philly scene, but I said, you know what? I really want to see if we can get companies that have never heard of us don't know me, don't know anybody that I know, and can we just go out there into the market and see if we can get paying customers? And so I started building these sales lists, went on LinkedIn, started targeting a lot of wow. HR leaders in San Francisco at tech companies, built them, went through my own process to get a bunch of people's emails, uploaded them into HubSpot, which is our CRM, mm -hmm. built out the five-step five email sequence to start just emailing people. And then, you know, you get those random, annoying emails that until you respond to the emails, you keep getting them. And we said, look, if we can get people to open up a cold email from a company and a person they've never heard of across the country, they resonate with the subject line, they open it, they actually read the entire email, they click on a link to book a demo, they actually show up to the demo, they resonate with the product, 
and then they go and get budget and pay for it. Right. If we can do that with cold Amazing. customers that we don't know, then we're on to something. Amazing. And that's what we did. That's incredible. That, so it really we, is. And once we went through that early validation stage on the product side and the go-to-market side, again, again, this didn't mean that, this doesn't mean that, you know, we're definitely going to be a billion-dollar company or, sure. or, you know, the company's going to last for 30 years. But what it does show is that we know that we built something that was super useful and we started to show that we can actually attract customers in some type of go-to-market tactic. And so that allows us to raise the half a million dollars. Amazing. For us to be Amazing. able to build the product and then now continue to validate that this product that we have built based off our existing customer feedback, as well as feedback from prospects and just HR people that we have on our board or HR consultants that we work with. Now, after taking all those learnings and baking it into this new product, does this product deliver on the promise and expectations that people have set for us and that we've set for ourselves? And now can we get a certain amount of customers and users and enough product stickiness to the point where we hit our goals and then we raise a seed round? Right. Right. Incredible. Um, so you've, you've done all that. Now you're, you're validated. You're, you're looking to fundraise and go to market. Yep. How important is marketing as a piece of the puzzle before and during the go to market phase? So I wouldn't necessarily say market marketing and go to market are two different things. Right. Because I mean, that's kind of what your go to market is. It's all about attracting customers that you believe will resonate with whatever you're doing. Right. For me, that's my that's my background. That's my specialty. So a lot of all the things that I could do as a CEO, sales and marketing is where I have the most experience. Right. And so this might be biased and probably is biased from my perspective. But to me, if you don't know how to go out and attract customers, mm -hmm. then you might as you might might as well just not even have the business because that's what it's all about. Right. You you can't just build it and then let it sit there. And then people are just going to be scrambling for it. You're not Apple where people are sleeping outside with <laughs> the next stupid iPhone. <laughs> you have to tell people what this thing is about. Right, right. And right. so how are you going to get people to understand that you exist, to understand your value proposition, and to have enough pain or feel so compelled that they want to use this thing? Because no one needs another software platform. Right. No right. one's ever thinking, you know what? You know what I need? I'm kind of down today. <laughs> I need another productivity app to make my life better. No, that's not what happened. That's funny. Dropbox, Box, Asana, Trello, Slack, yep. blah, 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 Office 365. You have all this You're shit. You're overwhelmed. Nobody's yeah. thinking, oh, man, if only I had another software platform, my life would be amazing. <laughs> that you have to learn. That you have to learn how to right. use and pay for and right. set up. No, right. nobody wants that. And so you have to figure out how to break through the noise. And your go-to-market and the, the testing and the validating of your go-to-market serves a few purposes. One, it shows that you can actually get customers. Mm -hmm. But then it also shows that if it actually converts, that there's demand for your product. And so you need both of those working against each other or working together right. at the same time. Right. Because if you can get in front of customers, but then you're not closing, then it might not necessarily be that it's a bad go-to-market plan, but it might be that your product isn't further enough along or that it's the wrong product, or that the product needs to change, or that you're talking to them where they like what you're doing, but it's not for this industry. I mean, there's so many things you're going to learn once you get in front of the customer. But without the marketing in the first place, how are you going to get in front exactly. of the customer? So you right. need it. Right. You need it. Right. Great. Um, so what are your best practices for preparing a marketing strategy for a tech startup, especially in a space where, to your point, you kind of have to break through the noise. You have to really 
um, create that that need, so to speak, right? Even if the demand already exists, because yep. to your point with some of the other stuff that you worked on, even sometimes people don't know that they have a problem, right? And you have to kind of not only show them that they have a problem delicately, but solve it for them with your solution, right? Yeah. So what what are your best practices when you're preparing a marketing strategy for something like that? So for me, and I'm specifically talking about tech startups, mm -hmm. you have to decide or you have to understand which side of the market spectrum that you're on. So the way that I look at startups is that you're either on one side where you're replacing an incumbent or an existing competitor. So I build a new CRM today. I'm, I'm trying to replace Salesforce. Right. Or you're all the way on the other side where you're building this thing that people typically didn't even know they needed or there really wasn't that many competitors that people were using or it's just not something that I thought of top of mind that I actually needed a solution or that this was a problem. And let's put Slack on that end, okay. right? Right. Because I know most people weren't thinking, man, I just need a better way to talk to people at work. <laughs> With a million <laughs> solutions already out right, there. Right, right, right. right. right There's right, so right, many right, other things, right. but most people weren't even using any of them. Most right. People were using Gmail. Email. Gmail is <laughs> a great example, though, no, that that was already a solution but had never broken through mm -hmm. from the Google mothership, right? right? And you're right. People communicate right. over email rather than using these other solutions that might be quicker and more efficient. So right. go ahead, back to right. your example, sir. And so it's all about you deciding which side of the spectrum that you're on or if you're somewhere in the middle because that's going to determine what type of marketing you're doing. That's going to determine whether or not you're going to market with somebody who already has this product category in mind, this use case in mind, already trying to solve this problem, already solving this problem with another solution, right. then you're coming in saying, I'm better, I'm faster, I'm cheaper, I'm different. Right. If you're coming in on this other side where you're telling people that you didn't know you had a problem, but we're just going to make this part of your work life or professional life so much better, then that's all about education. Right, right. And so now I have to beat you over the head with <laughs> all these reasons why either you're not doing something today or that you're doing it manually and you should be doing it this way and why this way is the best way in that you're stupid if you don't <laughs> use it this way because you're wasting so much time. And now that you know you have a problem, you need to solve the problem yeah, with right. the solution. Right. And no, you're not really saying that you're stupid, but you're making it so painfully obvious that it must be something wrong with you if you don't use it. I mean, you have to to get money from a company to pay for something. It's so hard that you almost have to go that hard. It almost has to be ridiculous for you to still do things this way now that this solution exists. Yeah. And so once you decide which part of the spectrum you're on, that will really help you determine which marketing tactics to take. Okay. And so should you use outbound email? Should you use LinkedIn? Should you use SEO? So if there's not a market that exists already, then SEO is a terrible idea because nobody's searching for the terms for what you're solving for. You're wasting time and money. You're wasting a lot of time right? and money. So maybe right. AdWords or SEO doesn't make sense. So now you maybe have to do content and you have to write content around um, these tangential Issues, right. Issues right. and things that are happening right. around the core problem to get people to then focus in closer and closer into right. that core problem. That you're like solving. having too much HR siloed data. Exactly. 
and not having it all in one place that's easy, yeah. easily accessible and, right. and readily available. Right. Right. Yep. Right. Exactly. Okay. And so, all right, now let's switch gears a little bit to, to the other side. You, you recently went through a pre-seed round. Congrats on, on getting a lot of that funding Thank done. Uh, I know you were trying hard to get there and, yeah. and that's awesome to hear that, that you were able to, um, so what are the lessons you learned throughout that process and what is your advice to other tech startups looking for VC investment? How can they get VCs to pay attention? How do you make yourself stand out with all the the noise in the VC space to begin with? And what are the key things that you think VCs are looking for that people need to be on their A game to get past at least, you know, the initial hurdles? So the thing that I've learned the most throughout this process is that it's not about getting someone to say yes. It's about telling an investor reasons why they shouldn't say no. And it almost sounds like the same thing, but it's totally different. Can you give an example? I can. Yeah. So when you go to an investor, they're looking at your market, your product, your team, your traction, and the market competition mm-hmm. right right so i mean there's more stuff than that but that's pretty much the the bulk sure what they're looking at sure and so they want you to tell them reasons why they shouldn't say no your market isn't big enough no there's too many competitors no you don't have enough traction no you're not solving a hard enough problem no you aren't raising enough money whatever that no is they're their default answer to you is no. As soon as you meet with an investor, the answer is no. You need to knock down all those no's. Right. So for every slide in your investment deck, the pre-defined answer that they have is no. <laughs> no. On the cover slide is yeah. no. Right. No. Right. No, I don't like exactly. the name. Yep. No. Don't like <laughs> no. the colors. Don't like don't the, like the product. <laughs> don't, like don't, like don't like any of it. I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it. And so you have to show proof. And that proof can be through data. It can be through storytelling. Storytelling is one of the best things you can do and learn in order to raise money. And I would think that I'm a pretty good storyteller, but I realized that even through the process, I may have been telling the wrong story sometimes. So telling a great story, telling the wrong story. i get to that in a second. But the first thing is about how to knock down those no's. And so the, the, the best advice that I was given in order to knock down the no's was to tell the story in a way and present your company and your investment opportunity in a way where you're answering all the questions that you think that they could potentially answer either through what you're saying or on a pitch deck so that if they think it, you've either already answered it or if they ask you because they don't think you've answered it, you're not making it up that you've answered it already because you actually have a slide that says, oh, that's actually in the 15th slide or the 12th slide. I can show you now or we can wait. And if they say show me now, you can show it. Oh, okay, he thought of that. She thought of that. Nice. They right. thought of that. <clears throat> because it's really just about risk. Right. And it's about de-risking. And so all those no's are risk, market risk, product risk, timing risk, team risk, cost risk, demand risk. Projections, risk, environment, political risk, whatever. It's all this risk. And if you can continue to de-risk, de-risk, de-risk the market, de-risk that this thing is going to work because 
you have customers or users or surveys or market experience. You worked in pharma for 30 years, and so you understand the market. Whatever you can do and communicate that you can de-risk a lot of those different parts of the business, mm-hmm. then you'll start knocking down those nodes. And you might not be able to de-risk every single part, but if you can de-risk the most important parts, and here's the hard part. The hard part is the most important parts are different to different people. Some investors really care about market. They believe that if the market's big enough, you'll figure this shit out. Right. As long as right. you're smart enough. Right. Some people believe, you know what? I don't need you to have a big market because if it's a big market, then there's probably already a bunch of big players. Right. I'd actually rather you start in a small adjacent market to a big market, own this small market, and then as that market grows, you ride the wave and then you eat that market. Right. Like Spotify, I right. think, is a good example of that. The market was nowhere near as big or Netflix. Mm-hmm. Netflix, exactly. probably right. a better example, right. where they started off and you know, on-demand video, net video, movie, was still in its infancy. Yeah. Super, super right. small yeah. when they started. Yeah. And now Disney, Hulu, um, Amazon. ESPN, everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody has everybody. a subscription now. And yeah. their pieces are probably going to be a lot smaller, but Hulu really, I mean, Netflix really rolled the wave. Yeah. And so if you can just de-risk, de-risk, de-risk as many things as possible, those no's, they don't necessarily turn into a yes immediately, but then you get them to the middle. And the right. middle is so hard to get to. Right. <laughs> to get from no to <laughs> middle to yes, it's so hard to get to middle. If you yeah. can get a person in the middle, that sometimes that's almost as good as a yes. Right. Because then it's, okay, you know what? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. maybe not. Right, right. Because that's the name of the game anyway. Yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Exactly. But as long as it's a maybe, maybe not versus it's a not, you're pretty much in a good place. You got to shout And if it. you can do those for as many as possible with a few yeses, okay, really smart team, but- Maybe the market's big enough. Maybe it's not versus, ah, this market is tiny, doesn't exist. Then you should be in a good place. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. That was, that was great. Now, how about uh, sometimes telling the wrong story? You mentioned that briefly. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what example do you have about that? So one of the investors that I spoke with in the beginning of our fundraising process, he told me, I hear what you're saying and you're telling a good story, but you're telling the wrong story. And I didn't understand what he meant. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're telling me the customer story. And because I was so used to doing demo after demo after demo, because I was just so hellbent and had internalized that we need to get traction, that just verbatim, I was just, this is why it's great. This is what you're going to get. Here's the ROI. Here's the value, all your data. And it was great because it was resonating with the customers. Right. But then I started telling that same story to investors. And I wasn't, and for a customer, you're talking one-to-one. Right. When you're talking right. to an investor, right. you're talking about thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or not typically millions for B2B, but right. a consumer, millions of customers. And so I want you to tell me, when you're talking to an investor, it's tell me how you did with this one, three, five customers, but then how does that work across all of these customers? Yeah. And I wasn't making the connection as clearly in the beginning of this is what we did here, but then this is what it's going to look like with 10,000 customers, 20,000 customers. And it was just too much in the weeds of why it's a great product and how much our customer, our early beta customers love the product versus customers love it. But here's how many customers use all of these systems. This is how much you can make. And this is how much money you can make. And this is how big the market is going to be. And then the story just became bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where, oh yeah, this this is a real company. 
and they're really That's ambitious. awesome. Awesome. Um, okay, cool. So what are the three things you wish someone would have told you as you were co-founding your companies and trying to grow the brands that you've been a part of? At what point? At, at, at the big, the big picture, three pieces of advice you wish somebody would have told you that would have gotten you past that learning curve. Or do you think that, that those, that learning curve is a necessity for you to be and be who you are and get to where you are today? Part of me feels that I definitely wouldn't be who I am today and know what I know had I not went through all the crazy ups and downs mm -hmm. in the past startups. Mm -hmm. I want to say the cliche thing that a lot of people say, <laughs> which is I'm glad no one told me it was going to be this hard. Even though people have said it, it's really no way to explain how hard it is yeah. and how challenging it is. Right. Because if you did know, and if you did know how long it was going to take for you to get to a certain point that you thought you would have got to three times as fast. Yeah. And <laughs> probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> That's like with most, most things of value though, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if somebody told you, you know, you have to go to the gym every single day and it's going to suck, which mm -hmm. is the way that it sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're going to have to bust your ass, you know, five days a week to even look slightly in shape. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'd never do it. But instead, they tell you, you know, come to Planet Fitness for $10 true, a true, month or, or do this 15 minute you know workout or whatever it is, because selling hard work isn't sexy. Right? <laughs> you know what's interesting? As you're saying that, the only place I think we hear it and we still do it is college. I don't know why. It's going to be really expensive and take four years <laughs> and you may never pay this off, but <laughs> right. it'll be worth it and in the long run. we still do it. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. really interesting. That's a good I never point. thought about it that Maybe way. there's some disruption there that, <laughs> that we can brainstorm. Maybe. maybe. Um, but yeah. no, some of the things that I wish I would have known earlier, I can tell you some of the things I wish I would have done differently. Okay. Yeah. So patience. A lot of patience, more in, patience. In what context? With product, for okay. sure. Okay. I mean, that's one of the things that I, I'm working on even to this day. I was going to say, it's really uh, tough for a business <laughs> developer to be patient with like product development. It and, is. And it involvement is. Of, it the, is. of the product. And so right? one of the things that I've tried to do is to not learn how to do it, but to learn about it, learn, learn more about product development, software development, when Silas will slack me something right? instead of me just blowing it off, actually reading it. Oh, okay, Kubernetes or containers or <laughs> AWS structure and blah, right. blah, blah, and all this other stuff that typically that's just not the thing that I'm really interested in. But right. I try to make a point to say, you know what? I need to understand this because one, I think it would just make me have more empathy for the development and engineering role, but then two, it also would allow me to really, well, not really, but more have a better understanding of the complexity and the challenges around doing it so that when things actually happen, I can say, all right, I can woosah. All right, well, it's going to take two more weeks or three more weeks. Just, what the yeah. fuck? Yeah. I, I know. It's taking yeah. so long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a common problem I think with with people who are entrepreneur, entrepreneurially minded, right? Where you're you kind of just like you just want to get to the end point. You just want to yeah, get to like yeah. even the eighty point, right? The the waiting is the hardest the right, hardest part. Right. And I, mean, I appreciate the journey. the The yeah, broader journey sure. is yeah. amazing. Yes, yeah. But it's 
the in the moment speeding up to all the individual <laughs> milestones <laughs> sometimes it gets sometimes it can get frustrating can be rough yeah, yeah very rough so okay patience what else what what are the other let's say two more things that that you wish you you would have known or or could tell yourself definitely storytelling okay with investment start earlier in in crafting those stories for the investors yes and truly understand the audience and what the audience is exactly looking for and the expectations that that would have helped out and different stories to your point from earlier yeah right? and yeah. then in understanding how to tell not only a different investor story to investors but different investor stories to different investors right where right. you know you're not lying to anyone and you're not telling you're not selling a different company yeah. a different dream right but you're emphasizing different things in real time now i'm, I'm pretty good at that because i can read exactly who i'm talking to boom Okay, I can clearly see that you care about market or you right. care about team or you care about competition or you really care about product and then I can optimize in real time. Nice. But in the very beginning, you know, that, that just wasn't a skill set that I had, not because I couldn't tell the story and I wasn't adaptable, but because I just didn't know what the story was to tell based off of different people's feedback. Yeah, and to your point, that's just something that you kind of have to learn from experience, right? Yeah. I, I don't really think there's a way to... to you could listen to all the storytelling books in the world. You could do all the prep work you, you want and rewrites and all sorts of stuff on your elevator pitches and all that, your slide decks and yep. make sure it's yep. perfect. And in the moment, there are variables that just happen. Personalities meshing to your point, reading, reading the room sometimes. Sometimes your read and your sense is just off a little bit. There are so many things that happen uniquely in each moment that you can't really prepare for, right? Right. Yeah. Awesome. So what about number three? Do you have a third one? Are oh, you really going to hold me to this? Yeah, this why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish... I wish I would have started to, to try to get customers earlier. Okay. We didn't wait too long, but I felt like we waited too long. And, and when I say customers, I don't... The, the unaffiliated customers. Mm -hmm. I wish we would have started the outbound email process faster to start violating that because I think that, that would have definitely allowed us to be further already. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for this, Bruce. This was amazing. Tons of information. That's my favorite sound <laughs> Me too. in the world. It, like when they do like uh, um, those club nights on the radio sometimes and you just yeah. hear the one DJ that just like hits that thing every 30 seconds or so. Right. It's my favorite. It's just right, you can't right. fail. It's, I kind of want to do it for anything. Yeah. Like breakfast is done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, I wish every time I put uh, food in no, the microwave, the microwave. That, that's the sound <laughs> when the food is done. And it has a smoke machine. Like it just it oh, yeah. smokes the whole yeah. kitchen out for you. That would yeah. be amazing. Oh, man. Amazing. It would uh, annoy great. the hell out of my wife, but it would be amazing. <laughs> I would I would love it. <laughs> um, all right. So if people are looking to get a hold of employee site, they want to uh, jump in on and get more information on the pre-seed round, yeah. or uh, they just want to pick your brain for something, what's the best way to find Employee Cycle and then to reach out to you? Sure. So for Employee Cycle, you can go to EmployeeCycle.com. Employee Cycle, spelled the way it sounds, the word employee, the word cycle.com. <laughs> you can find Employee Cycle also spelled exactly the same way on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. 
I don't think we have an Instagram, but not yet. But You're getting soon. there. It's getting there. Me, I mean, if you want to email me directly, Bruce, that's pretty simple. B-R-U-C-E at EmployeeCycle.com. And I'm, I'm actually not the biggest person on social media. Yeah, well, you, po- now, you post a little bit. But. I post a lot on LinkedIn, but yeah, I don't post right. personal stuff. Well, LinkedIn is same here. I mean, yeah, that, LinkedIn, not anymore. I'm really. trying to decide yeah. if I think LinkedIn is a social network. I mean, it is, but it's not. I was literally having this discussion with someone today mm-hmm. and, and it is, but it isn't. Right. Because right. there's that whole, like, it's like going to a networking event online. Basically. It's yeah. like there's that professional stigma. You don't want to get too drunk and be the story. <laughs> you want right. to just like, you know, right. you want to be entertaining, but to a point. Yeah. And then kind of hold back. True. But if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, definitely. Um, I'm on Facebook yeah. and Twitter as well. Yeah. Reach out. We're always looking for really smart people to work with, partners. If you're an HR person, you want to learn more, you can actually create a free account. On oh, the website awesome. wow. now. On Employee Cycle. Yeah. You go to EmployeeCycle.com. You can check it out. Brand new website. Create a free account. We'll give you access. Grant you permission. Have you up and running on the dashboard. Fantastic. Making HR smarter and data-driven. That's what we do. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much again for this time. This was fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.